you've ever solved a Rubik's Cube, you know, you start off by looking at all the jumbled faces. Well, we'll take the same approach with the Gita here. However, I don't plan to bore you to death. So we'll only go as far as the fourth chapter and then return to the solution. The narrative begins with King Dhritarashtra, who asks Sanjay, On the sacred battlefield, where the cousins, my sons and the sons of my brother Pandu, assembled to fight, what did they do? Sanjay answers that his son, Prince Duryodhan, approached the teacher Dronacharya and described to him the noteworthy warriors on both sides and expressed a mild trepidation, a little fear, at seeing the military formation of the mighty armies arranged by the Pandavas. He asks Dronacharya to ensure that their phalanxes protect their general Bhishma. Bhishma then blows his conch shell to give encouragement to the young whippersnapper that there's plenty of fight left in him and he's quite capable of handling himself and the armies. Thank you very much. Then everybody else starts blowing conch shells, declaring the battle to commence. At this point, Arjuna asks his charioteer, his cousin Krishna, to draw up their chariot in the middle of the two armies so that he may look upon the warriors on the other side. As if the conch blowing was only symbolic and they've been standing on a chessboard. Anyhow, Krishna pulls the chariot to the middle of the chessboard and when Arjuna sees his kinsmen arrayed on the other side, he loses his nerve. He wonders if a kingdom is worth committing sins of slaughtering one's own brethren and the social upheaval that will follow. He drops his weapons and sinks down on his seat. Krishna then wonders at his sudden dejection, tells him it is unbecoming of him as a warrior and asks him to stand up. At this point, we've reached the beginning of the so-called second chapter of the text and Arjuna again repeats the arguments he made in the first chapter about not wanting to shoot arrows at his teachers and elders. Then he says he is confused and asks Krishna to instruct him. Is it worth it? He wonders again. Then he declares he will not fight. Krishna then smiles enigmatically and starts explaining to him about the immortality of the soul, which is imperishable, as compared to the body which is perishable. And this is a fairly long discourse, about 20 verses long. This is deep philosophy, and obviously out of context on the battlefield, and out of character for Krishna too, who, with his previous advice, was focused on Arjuna's warrior role, and who, also in his next advice, following this brief interlude into philosophy, again presses on the immediate fact that Arjuna is a warrior, and it is his duty and his honor to fight and die in battle. Krishna then apparently again drops out of character and starts a second lecture, this time on the yoga of intelligence. We're still in the second chapter, mind you, and Arjuna is apparently still shedding tears. However, Krishna is asking him to listen how the yoga of intelligence can be used 
to transcend three modes of material nature and having an equipoised intellect become indifferent to philosophies that have yet to be invented. Are you getting to see why this text is confusing to a casual reader? Individually, of course. Each shloka, each verse is a gem of wisdom. Not a doubt about that. But read it like the lyrics of the song Celestial, that it is supposed to be, and you're in muddy waters, my friend. Because verily and forsooth, we discover that when Krishna declares, next, when your intellect is no longer bewildered by the multiplicity of holy scriptures, then you will have achieved yoga. Arjuna also drops out of character. He no longer refers to his raging anxiety of killing his dear kinsman. Instead, he asks Krishna to describe what such a person looks like. How does he sit? How does he walk? Krishna explains further aspects of the yoga of intelligence or buddhi yoga. And then the chapter ends with him telling Arjuna that having attained the true state of the Supreme Spirit or Brahman through the process of buddhi yoga, he will become one with the eternal. That's the last word in the chapter. And it is important to remember it because of what follows. For a moment here, let's avoid the elephant on the battlefield that Arjuna's despondency at the beginning of chapter 2 has been deftly knocked out of the ballpark by this tangential distraction into yoga by Krishna. So Arjuna was was crying and Krishna consoled him apparently by getting him interested in deep philosophy just in the middle of the battle nothing odd about it at all well let's see where chapter 3 takes us Arjuna now asks Krishna if wisdom is greater than action why do you want me to fight huh where did that come from Remember chapter 2 ended with Krishna saying that through buddhi yoga he will become one with the eternal? He wasn't talking about wisdom or jnana at all. In fact, Arjuna mirrors the confusion of the reader here because in the next verse he says, Your language perplexes and confuses me. Now at my first attempt at reading the Bhagavad Gita, I got stuck here. I could move forward and get more confused myself or go back and analyze what I had read before. Being of a foolhardy nature, I pressed on. After Arjuna asks him to explain why he prefers wisdom or jnana to action or karma, Krishna instead starts describing the glories of karma in detail. And then in another quick change of character, apparently reintroduces the supremacy of the three modes of nature which, if you remember in the previous chapter, he had assured could be transcended by the yoga of intelligence. Then the focus shifts again, and Krishna starts talking about his own divinity and that the wise meditate on him, further declaring that those who ridicule his words, Krishna's words, are ignorant, blind and stupid, destined for self-destruction. The chapter finally ends with Krishna switching back to referring to the Supreme Spirit in the third person. 
he who is beyond the senses, mind and intellect. Adding that by subduing one's personal ego, one should kill desire, which is quite revealingly the true enemy and the real villain of the piece. Once again, the chapter started with a question that has not only not been answered, but we've been riding on a bad acid trip instead. In chapter 4, Krishna tells Arjuna to act with wisdom. This is it. Scan through the entire chapter and it's without any distractions. Bar 1. It's a straightforward discourse that ends with Krishna telling Arjuna to follow the path of wisdom and arise. That's the last instruction on that chapter. It is obvious that Arjuna's question then, at the beginning of the previous chapter, where he asks Krishna why is he goading him into action when he thinks wisdom is better, begins to make sense. Someone switched the chapters. Chapter 3 should have followed chapter 4. Maybe the palm leaves fell out and an intern put them back in the wrong order. Maybe someone wanted the reader to be confused and seek out a guru to explain it all. Nonetheless, Putting the beautiful philosophical streams aside, I wanted to return to Krishna's original train of thought, where he's exhorting Arjuna to take up arms and not behave like a wimp. And I discovered that he doesn't return to it until the 18th chapter, the last chapter in the book. Along the way, I discovered the clue to solving the Gita. There are three Krishnas in the Gita. The first one speaks to Arjuna of his duty as commanded by the warrior's code, the Kshatriya Dharma. He speaks of the primacy of the Vedic scriptures, of the yagyas and sacrifices, and the supremacy of the three modes of nature. I call him the Brahminical Krishna, who speaks to the man of action, and so I highlighted those verses with a red marker. The second is the Guru Krishna. He talks of yoga, not yajna or sacrifice. Indeed, he declares that yoga is the sacrifice through which one must unite with the Supreme Spirit, Brahman. And the purpose of life was not to propitiate any gods. He refers to God in the third person. He dismisses the Vedas and the ancient practices. He is the philosopher an iconoclast seeking to reform the stodgy old Brahmins by exhorting them to focus on their own self-realization first and refrain from greedy, slothful behaviors. Those verses are derived from the Upanishads, and I mark them out with orange color just to keep the color coding going. Finally, there is the Bhagavata Krishna. All those verses in which Krishna refers to himself as God, I marked with a blue marker. The majority of these verses are bang in the middle of the book, from chapters 7 through 12. In these verses, the Bhagavata tradition adds a layer of specialty to the yoga systems given by Guru Krishna. Apart from the middle six chapters, wherever it was possible to add on a special aspect of personal devotion to Krishna as an upgrade to yoga, it was done so. It may have happened that by the time this upgrade happened, 
the deification of the Buddha that the Greeks had engineered through their carved statues eventually inspired the Vedic followers to also start building temples and worshipping images. The Brahmins, not to be outdone by all this editing, repeatedly added on their own counterpoints to whatever would suit their ends. We know that they had been superseded, first by the Vedantists and then by the Bhagavatas, and of course when they couldn't defeat their enemy, they joined them. So they infiltrated their ranks, the ranks of the Bhagavatas, and began to reintroduce aspects of the ancient Vedic religion into the egalitarian movement. The fire sacrifice resurfaced in its miniaturized version, the ghee lamp, along with the offerings of fruits and flowers, gold ornaments and fine clothing, all of which was now kept in open view, decked onto the deity. Everyone was welcome to give everything they had. The Brahmin was back in control. In the last chapter, the verses end up contradicting each other again and again, one after another. It is as if the text of the Gita has itself become a sort of sacred battleground of different philosophical schools of thought, a dharmakshetra kurukshetra, in a meta sense, the sibling philosophies assembled to fight. And this is what they did. In the next episode, I will finally resolve the first layer, the original Gita of 75 verses that was inserted into the 23rd chapter of the Bhishma Parva of the Mahabharata. Follow the podcast, please, and stay tuned.